Hello, welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On this podcast, we like to look at what can be done to treat hypermobility and how to improve our lives given our circumstances. I wanna start out by thanking all the people who have reached out and emailed to suggest guests. These contacts have been very helpful. And as a result, we have some exciting new episodes coming up in the future. And thank you to all of our listeners. We really appreciate your time and your feedback. Today, we have a very special guest who has done some amazing advocacy work. Uh, Ryan Mason is a nurse, advocate, sex educator, athlete, activist, and Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome patient who is involved in a number of projects, many of which involve spreading awareness about the need for increased visibility for disabled persons and for better accessibility in the media and in society at large. Uh, You may know her on Instagram as Chronically Rye, um, and Ryan was crowned Miss Wheelchair Virginia 2020 and 2021, a role that has allowed her to promote disability education and awareness. She was also recently interviewed by Forbes magazine in an article that discussed her work with Miss America, Camille Schreier, um, and we'll include a link to that article and to Ryan's Instagram page um, in the page notes to this episode as well. Uh, Ryan, hello. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you for using your voice to promote awareness in such interesting and innovating ways. Hello, hello, and thank you so much for having me, and that intro was marvelous. I think it was better than the one I wrote myself. (laughs) Oh, thanks. Um, no, I'm a huge fan. I really, um, yeah, your, your Instagram page is really um, super engaging and it, it's really a fresh voice and it, it definitely it really speaks to me. Um, let's start at the beginning of your story. Uh, how were you first diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and what have been your primary symptoms or manifestations? Absolutely. Um, Well, so like so many of us, I stumbled into my diagnosis accidentally. Um, I was actually at a, an appointment that wasn't even mine. It was for my little sister. Um, uh, She has pectus excavatum and was being checked out for Marfan's syndrome, excuse me. And uh, the doctor's checking him, her out and I'm just there and finishes her exam, you know, determines, no, I don't think you have more fans. You're just a little hypermobile. And then he takes one look at me and he's like, Hey, do you mind if I check you out? Even though it's not my appointment. I'm like, all right, since we're siblings and my whole family was there, he's like, let's just do this. And so that's the first time I'd ever heard the term Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And, um, I got diagnosed soon after, and I was around 16 years old, um, when that happened. Um, before that, I mean, we just thought I was a clumsy kid. I was constantly falling in and out of the ER, head injuries, the whole nine um, that we all know and love so well. Yeah. Plus, because I was, you know, flexible, I was a gymnast, I was a dancer, I was in martial arts, like totally rough and tumble and just constantly hurting myself. So, yeah, so that was um, how I was finally diagnosed or how I was initially diagnosed um, way back when. And so back then, we, they were only really treating and diagnosing three types of EDS, and now we're up to 13. So a lot has changed since I was initially diagnosed, and I've had to kind of re-go through, grow through that process several times, and I'm about to go through it again. I'm so excited. (laughs) But as we know, it's a lifetime process. (laughs) Um, But um, yeah, other than that, um, my primary symptoms initially have been all musculoskeletal. Um, I was 
the only one, well, not only one I was born with, but the one that was most apparent when I was born, uh, my right shoulder would sublux every single time I raised it above um, chest level. And so I'm right-handed. So that was really unfortunate. Uh, anytime mm-hmm. I'd go to reach a glass, you know, it would just pop out and pop back in like we're all so used to. Um, and I remember like they just called it my trick shoulder and I used to use it to like pretend I could like do the thing where I could get out of my arms and like get out a straight jacket, stuff like that. <laughs> but other than that, I, it was nothing. Um, I had really flat feet. Uh, my gums bled a lot as a kid. That was it? Um, nothing. And so it wasn't until, um, I was in high school. Um, I think that I got finally diagnosed and investigated for dysautonomia and POTS and all that loveliness. Um, I'm formally diagnosed with just dysautonomia, the whole spectrum, because they can't narrow it down to one thing. They'll just say, you know what, you got all of it. It's great. (laughs) So I've had that um, mitral valve prolapse with that loveliness. Um, I've had my gallbladder removed because it was too stretched out. Um, Dumping syndrome from a stretched out stomach, as well as uh, intestines. And I had rectopexia last year for a grade three rectal prolapse oh. with me and all of the old ladies on the unit. It was really uh, fun. <laughs> uh, that's so much. Uh, wow. Um, that's incredible. I can't believe you do all you oh. do despite and that. Bi- I forgot. And bilateral shoulders. I got both of those done. I knew I was forgetting one of them. All right. That was the only one. <laughs> wow. That's, that's incredible. And there's so much about your story. That's incredible because so many of the things you mentioned are so common and you know I relate to I don't know six somewhere between 60 and 80 percent of what you just said and it's interesting how you said like when you were younger there weren't many manifestations and and I think the way you said it was except your shoulder would pop out your gums would bleed your teeth are flat and it's interesting because like those don't feel like big deals to us especially once we get later in life and we see like oh how much worse the things get But still, like compared to an average child, like those are still large impacts on our lives. And like, especially the time before we were diagnosed, like that's a huge psychic burden to to see, like, why do I have all these other issues that my friends don't seem to be having? Like, what's wrong? And, you know, a lot of us go to doctors or we've, you know, consulted with family members, loved ones, like, hey, I have this weird symptom. And, you know, it's so common for us to just get completely dismissed. Don't worry about that. You're fine. You look fine. Um, And, you know, and unfortunately, I think, you know, there's a lot of theories why, but we tend to have like this velvety skin as part of the condition. So, you know, personally, I wonder if like our collagen structures to begin with aren't as robust so that when they sink as we age, it's less noticeable because there's like less of a distance to go. I don't know. Or if it's like our blood vessels are kind of more spread out. So more blood can kind of get to different tissues, but it is a noticeable thing. Kind of like we tend to quote unquote, look good despite Mm -hmm. all of these things. And that creates this huge barrier to people because we're so visually driven. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's so great that you ended up being diagnosed at 16. You know, I also, and so many others, just stumbled into my diagnosis. I was at a friend's birthday party and an ER doctor pointed out that I have arachnodactyly, like the long bendy spider fingers that bend at the joints. 
And I had never heard that before, went home, looked it up, and it led me to Ehlers-Danlos and it explained like every weird thing, you know? <laughs> the page and explains your life. You're and like- Just like, how have I never heard of this? And how has no doctor mentioned this? And, you know, it's not even like, I had literally never heard the words in my life. Like I could not believe this and, and for it to affect me and, you know, likely a lot of people um, that I've come to interact with, it's just, it's a mind blowing process. Um, you know, unfortunately I was 29 when that happened. So I had already incurred a lot of damage, um, you know, unknowingly. Um, so it's, it's so important for people to get you know, diagnose as soon as possible. I think awareness is so key because at least once we know what's going on, you know, that's, that takes away one stressor of like, you know, what is going on here and, you know, helps us find resources because so many of these things are treatable, but it takes so much effort. Um, I'm reminded of the, there's this book called the orchid and the dandelion. And there's sort of this theory that some people are more like orchids and some people are more like dandelions. Like some people can be planted and thrive almost anywhere. And some people need, you know, very precise care, light conditions and, um, and, you know, are a lot more sensitive. Um, and that idea kind of speaks to me because that's sort of how I, I see myself. Like I'm, I'm literally high maintenance. Like it takes a lot to just maintain my, like, you know, try to aim for homeostasis, like, you know, barely getting there, but it's just, um, it's different, but it's, I've also, you know, through this podcast, I've been able to encounter voices of people, um, like yourself. Um, and there's other doctors who say, you know, this isn't just doom and gloom obstacles. Like, yes, there's a lot of limitations to our lives, but I, I'm consistently struck when I speak with people with this condition, how sensitive they are, how emotionally intelligent they are, how smart they are, how creative, talented. And I think these things go hand in hand. I don't know if it's the pain that stimulates our brain in funny ways, or if it's the stretchiness of the tissue that gives us more input, but there's certainly a lot of advantages and, and a lot of, you know, we, we have a lot of we have a lot to contribute to the world, you know, despite our limitations. And if only like our limitations could be addressed in a more compassionate way, which I think needs to happen at a societal level, which is why I think your advocacy is so great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was just thinking, I'm like, you know what, um, maybe a big part of that is because my entire childhood, I was so terrible at sports because everything hurt. Um, all I did was read. Constantly, mm -hmm. <laughs> like my punishment used to be, they'd take my books away. It was very rude. <laughs> That's funny, and I, I so I relate to that too. And you mentioned the clumsiness earlier. That's such a key thing. And I so I've also I've always been like two left feet kind of thing. And people would say to me, "Oh, are you a dancer?" And I would like laugh, like. I can, I'm just trying to walk upright and it's like, but once you learn about proprioception and you learn yeah. why that is, but once you just think you're clumsy, it's easy to think like, gosh, I, you know, it, you know, blame yourself and think, why can't I do these simple, you know, the other kids can just stand up without tripping and, you know, yeah. not be sidetracked by not, not get dizzy spells, whatever. So again, just early awareness is oh constantly got it because I was a dancer. My family was like, I don't understand like how, and it was because ballet and dance trained and helped me learn that proprioception. However, 
it was very effective in that moment on stage. But as soon as I stepped out of that headspace where I'm constantly thinking about my alignment and thinking about my where my body is in space, I'm constantly go back into, you know, me. And so they're like, as soon as you step on the stage, you're this different, beautiful, graceful human. And then you step off and you're suddenly a baby giraffe again. I'm like, hello, I'm a transformer. <laughs> the beauty that's, of the stage. Yes. And I, that's so interesting. And I relate to that so much because a lot of the adjustments that really do help our lives, being aware of our bodies, being mindful, um, you know, working, working on focusing, um, toning muscle groups, however that fits for us. You know, some people swimming, some people swear by yoga, some people swear by Pilates, some people just on their back, physical therapy. Like when that, when we can be in tune with our body, like we really can feel, you know, good. And I, I don't know, we can do well. And then it's as soon as we get out of tune with our body, but we just get out of tune so quickly like we we get in and maybe it's like the stress of being upright for a long period of time like our our heart's not getting enough blood to our brain I mean there could be so many reasons you know a lot of us have cervical neck instability and that's a huge deal but it's so it's so hard a when people like you said they look at us and then they see us in our good moments because that's when we're in front of people and they're like oh you seem great and they don't see our really struggling moments and so there's this confusion and then we're confused ourselves because it's like well why is that it is weird and if you don't have the explanation as to why and you know that's that's really difficult and that's why I'm encouraged by learning more about some of these programs that are geared at um, helping kids from an early age work on these proprioception programs because it's just so hard to learn once you've got these patterns in place so Yeah. And so that kind of segues into my next question um, about your your awareness and your advocacy. How did you decide to start documenting um, your story? So I um, have always been a ham and so loved the camera, loved showing off that whole nine. Um, And I I guess it started I had an Instagram and like I just posted normal, you know, run of the mill pictures partying and hanging out with my family. Um, but I think it was when my mobility started to lessen. So around 2016, um, so my hips have always been really loose, but I've been able to kind of quote unquote, pop them out on command, like party tricks. It's been great, but, uh, that party trick slowly morphed into every time I took a step in uh, my left leg, mainly now it's both. Um, and so as that progressed, um, and as I had to leave my job in the ER and, you know, step away from bedside nursing and all these big changes, I have a lot of friends and family all over the globe. And I was like, well, I don't really want to just show up to gatherings and everything and just be in a wheelchair or be using crutches or whatever I ended up needing at that time. And just have that, you know, that shock factor times a million. I rather it already be out there. It's already like communicated. Everyone's aware. It's not this crazy thing. So I did it honestly just for that. And then as I start posting, I started tagging Elisandlos. And I remembered back when I was first diagnosed and how 
well, for one, there was no Instagram. So I couldn't just go and find a community very easily. I mean, there were very early like discussion groups on pages, but they were mostly moms trying to find help for their young kids. So my teenage self did not feel welcome or did not see anything that was going to help me. Mm -hmm. um, I was still trying to continue dancing um, or finding other, I joined the marching band because I thought that would be easier on me. Yeah, it was funny. I did that for a year and missed dancing. So then joined the color guard, which was awesome on my shoulders. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like that was a great decision. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah. So I started posting to kind of show that decline and in the midst of it found this community of people that I wished that I'd had when I was first diagnosed. And so everyone, most of the people that I was meeting and that were reaching out to me were very newly diagnosed or are just hearing about Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And he's, it sounds like their lives. And so all of a sudden I'm just flocked by all these messages. And I was just like, well, I became a nurse because I wanted to help people that were like me that grew up in hospitals and that, you know, had to be in the ER all the time. And I wanted to be that friendly face that was there to greet them and keep them calm in this moment that could have been the worst moment of their lives. Like that is why I started to be a nurse. So you know, why can't I be the person that I needed when I was first diagnosed to this community of people who don't have anyone to help them, you know, educate or learn these things. And then working as a nurse at the same time, I have connections to both sides of these resources, which are incredibly helpful. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's really why I started in the first place. Um, but yeah, and it's just kind of blossomed into way more than I could ever imagine. <laughs> That's an amazing story. It's really, it's so inspirational. And it reminds me of the quote, be the person you needed when you were younger. And you've really manifested that. Like, I love that you're trying to be that thing that you needed. Um, you know, I've been working for a while on writing a book that I wish I had when I was diagnosed about kind of the overview of information. And it's that same sort of mentality. And I think it's so great because you've managed to, it's so difficult when we work so hard for a career and we're going in one direction and we think our life is going to look a certain way. And then to have to transition out of that is devastating and so difficult. And for you to parlay those skills and, you know, do that with the platform that you have. It's just, it's such an amazing story and it's it's clearly helped so many people. And it's just, it's so wonderful that you've, you know, found this way to, to, you know, not only persevere and tell your story. And it's so, it's so conscientious of you too, like how it started as wanting to, you know, your family to be able to understand what you were going through without that shock factor. And that brings up such an important point. Like, so much of what we're dealing with is we look fine and then we encounter people and we're on crutches or we're in a wheelchair or whatever. And it's like, what happened to you? Like a guy came up to me at the grocery store. I was on crutches and he was like, what's your problem? And I was like, oh, I just had hip surgery. And he's like, why did you get it by a car or something? And I'm like, no, I just have a connective tissue disorder. And he's like, what, what is that? And so it's like, I'm just trying to go to the grocery store. And I feel like an object of fascination. And, you know, I had one woman come up to me and say, I'm so sorry you're going through this. I'll pray for you. And it's like, I'm just, you know, I, I appreciate 
like the support and I understand the curiosity, but I'm just trying, like, I'm struggling. Like I'm already so tired. I'm like just trying to get a few groceries and like, I don't have the emotional bandwidth to be like educating the supermarket about what Ehlers-Danlos is. And then I'm so frustrated. Like, why do I, why am I in this position? And there's so little awareness. And so I think you're so smart and compassionate to, to put this story out there. And it's a brave thing to do and something I've really struggled with. It's taken me a long time to come to terms with my, and I think I'm still working on, you know, my limitations and it's just, it's tough when you've been raised to, you know, we're very tough, we're goal oriented, we're smart, we work hard. And so to like go so headlong in one direction and then realize, whoa, I need to completely recalibrate because I'm not working with the same density of connective tissue. And that has real implications. And if I don't take care of it, you know, stitch in time saves nine, like I will get really severe complications. I, I recently heard a an interview with a doctor who specializes in Ehlers-Danlos and he described it like building a house without proper mortar. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was such an interesting metaphor. Cause I think people can understand that right away. It's like, we're like, our foundation is like weakened and, yep. and people don't realize I didn't realize, you know, I was diagnosed five years ago. I didn't realize like bones are connective tissue Like, it's not just like the fibrous stuff, like it's everywhere and it affects, you know, blood vessels. Like, it's just, it's so widespread, you know, a lot of the, you know, stomach intestinal issue all has um, tissue, I mean, has um, uh, a compromised or, you know, a weakened nature to it. And then that makes things extra stretchy, you know, like you said, with the gallbladder. And so it's all, and all these things and to have to relearn and kind of reintegrate into your life, you know, you know, 16 is already, you're pretty far into life, you know, and, but I've heard of, you know, people in their 60s, 70s, you know, Mm -hmm. learning this and it's like, it's just, it's too late. And there's, you know, it's, I don't know about you, but I look back and I cringe on the things I used to do the, I, the party tricks, like I could put both my elbows completely behind my back and cross them. And that was my thing. And, you know, people would, you know, you have a fun thing at a, you know, event, an icebreaker. It was like, that was my thing I could do that no one else could do. And now I just cringe. Cause like, I've had to have shoulder surgery. Like the, the labor, I mean, the labrum was torn long before I could do that. It's not like that tore the labrum, but it's like, I just think of stretching my poor collarbones and shoulders. And I'm like, Oh, I can't believe I ever did that. But I didn't know, you know, no one ever told me it's that could be, you know, stretching things too far. And so, yeah, that's where, it's so great to have an advocacy, you know, um, platform and you do such a great job of telling the accurate story, but it's also very creative. It's very artistic. Like it's just, it's very, it's legitimately entertaining and informative. And that's such a hard balance to strike. So kudos to you. (laughs) It's been years and years of work. That's for sure. It hit me the other day, how long I've been doing this. And like, it literally, I started while I was still ambulatory and have progressed all the way across the whole decline. And that has been just like the craziest thing to me, but also really cool. Just like an interesting experience to get to do it, like in the public eye like that. And I mean, have the assistance of my followers. If I did run into issues, I remember um, one day 
the, when I was very new living alone as the wheelchair user, um, I had to figure out how to take my trash out. And I remember polling my followers and I was like, all right, <laughs> wheelchair users, somebody help me. And I sure enough learned several ways to do it. <laughs> that is so wonderful. And that's such an illustration of the need for us to have healthy communities where we can support each other and, you know, go to each other for that kind of insight, because it's anything that we're going through alone just compounds the suffering so much. And it not only feels good for the person like you receiving the advice, but that person, these people that are reaching out and giving you advice, like it's an opportunity to contribute. And, you know, I enjoy that too. Like anytime I can help connect someone to, you know, a patient advocate or someone that I've worked with, it's just, it's, it's making some of that suffering I went through meaningful that it wasn't just purposeless. It's like, now I've learned valuable information that I can use to help other people to avoid hopefully what I've had to go through. And that is such a win-win and it's, and it's so easy. And it's like, it's just, it's so difficult that we live in a world that is just really forgotten or overlooked us or ignored. I'm not sure what the right, you know, verb what's going on, but it's very unfortunate that we have to do this, but um it's it's great that people like you have really risen to the occasion um and you're doing such an awesome job of it um which segues me into my next question um which is how do you manage to balance your advocacy um and all you do with managing your symptoms i know this is such a tricky question but uh yeah what's what's kind of your approach um I, I always joke that I don't sleep much, but I actually, the opposite, and especially if you ask my girlfriend, um, I sleep a lot. <laughs> um, pretty much any spare moment I use as much as possible for like energy conservation. Um, and it's not always like my schedule is not always as crazy as it seems. There are times where I am like working 12 hour shifts, getting off my shift, coming home, recording one, maybe two podcast interviews, recording something for content, going to bed, sleeping maybe four hours and doing it again. And like, I pay for that, but I know because I've been doing this so many years and because I've been working in the healthcare field in this, you know, high powered environment for so long, I know what that's going to cost me. I don't do that often. Um, but when I do, I know, you know, what I need to budget or how long it's going to keep me in bed. It's not as much as a surprise anymore. Um, now that being said, um, that things have taken me, you know, by surprise, for example, working at the bedside for the first time as a wheelchair user, um, I had to completely recalculate how tired I would be after a shift, um, versus when I was ambulatory. Um, and at first it was awful. I was exhausted constantly because I was exerting so much more energy because I had no idea how to do these movements that were once so normal and so natural for me. Mm -hmm. And having to completely relearn that again was just like ridiculous. Um, yeah, but like now that wheelchair like has it saved me so much more energy than i ever had when i was ambulatory working in the er like i am i can stay up and i can record these podcasts and i can do this because i utilize my mobility aids like i need to um you were talking about like things that we regret from when we were younger 
Well, I danced for over 10 years um, and completely destroyed the joints in my lower legs. I mean, there's just, there is no cartilage left in my hips and not much in my knees. Mm -hmm. um, and so because of that, like people are always, I get, would get a, I don't want to say accosted, but in the early days I would get accosted because I was in a wheelchair and I had EDS and they're like, we've never seen this before. What is wrong with you? I'm like, I danced professionally. <laughs> I was an idiot. <laughs> Here we go. But, but it's so hard to tell because you know there are people too that haven't that are in wheelchairs or I've seen you know kids from a very early age like needing mobility aids. So who knows? You know maybe the dancing oh, in some ways sure. kept your muscles strong. It's it's so easy to like blame ourselves, but I hope you don't too much. And you didn't know for a lot of it too, and so it's like, but but yeah, it's it's unfortunate. Like the doctor's response of like what's going on here. This seems you know, more extreme. It's like, you know, as you and I know, like people with EDS is truly the full spectrum of functionality. There's so many different comorbidities. There's a lot of overlap. Um, and even sometimes day to day, like we can have a good day, but then we, you know, use up all our energy. And then the next day we're in bed or we're wiped out yeah. with pain flare. And so it's so, there's so much variety that on some level I can understand why the presentation is confusing to doctors but on the other hand it's frustrating because it's like it's a population that's in so much need and is suffering and there's like very little curiosity to get to the bottom of it and there's a very judgmental and not to blame the healthcare practitioners at all because the model is such that like doctors generally have 15 minutes to see us and like our problems are not addressable in 15 minutes like we're very complex and so, you know, that's why some of the alternative healthcare models where people can spend more time, you know, with a nurse practitioner or with a, a doctor who has a private practice or whatever, um, you know, people have really benefited from things like that. But it just makes sense in our current system of people going to these, you know, places where 15 minutes is sometimes you're lucky to get 15 minutes. And a lot of times they're looking at the screen, just entering, clicking all the boxes the whole time. And they're not even you know, they don't have that moment to interact with you as a human to be like, what's really going on here? Like, you know, let's try to look at the big picture instead of one. A lot, um, working in the ER. Um, I remember, I mean, obviously in the ER, we have people in and out constantly. And so if you're there for a very small thing, you'll be seen for a very small amount of time. Um, you don't want to be seen for a long time in the emergency room, mm -hmm. but in my entire time, so I worked in med emergency medicine for over 10 years. And in the time that I worked in that, in that um, part of medicine, I saw maybe four patients with EDS, maybe. Um, and in that time, and this was all different doctors that I worked with, all different hospitals that I was in when this happened. And of all of those one of them, the doctor had ever heard of it and actually knew that the patient was having abdominal pain and maybe we should look at an aortic aneurysm for us. You know, that's a, only one who um, knew that. Wow. Everyone else was completely clueless, but luckily I was there working. So I got to educate as to what it is, you know, what we should be looking for, what issues they might be having. And every single time I would stop and think, what if I wasn't here? <laughs> like, 
And then, I mean, yes, we see complex conditions and we see conditions we don't know about all the time. Sure. And then we run over and we look them up and we have exactly five seconds to look up the gist of that condition and run back over and treat the patient. Like that's not conducive to care mm-hmm. for people with complex medical conditions. And mm-hmm. so that's, it's just unfortunate. You're right. that There doesn't seem to be the interest or the curiosity or excitement that we see in so many other different types of medical conditions and people see it as just, oh, well, you're flexible. Mm-hmm. Well, no, actually people are dying. So n- n- no, it, <laughs> yep. it's a life shortening condition for many people. Um, yep. <laughs> And when I mentioned, like, I, I totally relate to that because I was talking about my low blood pressure episodes one time to someone and how it makes me faint and dizzy. And they were like, oh, you're lucky because I have high blood pressure. And a lot of people would be lucky to have low blood pressure. And I'm just like, no, they're both bad, just in different ways. It's like, there really is a happy medium and having your blood pressure, um, you know, spike when you stand up and then get really low. Like it, it's a roller coaster ride. And once you know that that's what's going on, you see how dramatic of a difference it makes in your mood, your brain function, just everything. So it's so it's, it's really a difficult situation. That's where we really need like some larger advocacy campaigns. And I'm really encouraged by some of this research I've been hearing about, um, like this, the Norris lab in South Carolina is doing this really interesting gene research, Um, and, you know, hopefully as some of that research is published and comes out, um, you know, there can be like social media campaigns, um, you know, maybe I'll talk to you off the episode about some ideas I have about, um, you know, similar things to like the ALS ice bucket challenge, like getting some kind of larger kind of public awareness campaign out there. Um, I think billboards are pretty cheap to purchase these days. So, uh, you know, I've been thinking, you know, how can we get this message out there? Because, it really does. It saves lives for people to know what's going on, uh, you know, at the doctor informational level and at the patient level. And like you said, in all those instances, like what would happen if you weren't there? I mean, a lot of people get written off as, oh, this is psychosomatic or, you know, we took this one scan or we did this one blood test and it's normal. So therefore you're normal. And it's just, that's not how this goes, unfortunately. Um, and it's, it's interesting because reminding me of your, your medical work, um, brings me to like this question that I ask a lot of people on the show, because it's something I find really interesting in your observation. Do you find, do you think ehlers Danlos is rare or do you think it's rarely diagnosed or is it sort of too hard to say based on the population that you've seen? Cause you know, there's been kind of some competing back and forth, theories sure. on this. And I'm curious because you have such direct like knowledge, what you think about it. I think that um, it is a, definitely a spectrum and we, it does have, you know, so many different subtypes and things. And I think there are subtypes that are rarer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think more of the, the, like the vascular is obviously very mm-hmm. rare. And then all of the subtypes that I can't even pronounce that are have like four people with them, like those absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> towards the lower end of just the lower spectrum of just hypermobility, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, absolutely just rarely diagnosed for sure. Um, I have run across so many people, um, not only just in my practice, um, especially now that I'm working in postpartum with primarily women, obviously. Um, and (laughs) I see it so often 
well, and you can also say, well, it, is it just Ehlers-Danlos or is it just collagen disorders mm-hmm. in general? Mm-hmm. Um, I always think back to, you know, I see Marfan syndrome diagnosed so much more often because it's so much more common in men mm-hmm. um, than I see Ehlers-Danlos, even though they're considered like brother-sister syndromes. So I, I always bring that up in doctor's offices. I'm like, I just think this is really interesting. Like I've been um, brought up and tested for Marfan syndrome more times than I can count, but I have to beg to get tested for EDS. And I'm like, mm, that's this. So I think there's a lot of factors at play. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of medical stigma that is yes. at play with this for sure. Absolutely. And that's really problematic. And there's been some great books written about that, about the disparities and how women are you know, treated differently. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of men suffer from that, too. I think because Ehlers-Danlos is seen as a largely yeah. female condition, even though it's inherited 50-50 when men have it. I've heard of cases of them struggling, you know, just as hard, if not harder, because it's seen as a woman's condition, which is crazy. And so it's just, it's very bizarre that this is the state of things, but I completely agree with your assessment. That's consistent with my observation. Like, yes, there are very rare types of Ehlers-Danlos, but hypermobility in general seems, I don't want to use the word common, but, you know, something you definitely encounter in your day-to-day life um, and hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos, you know, definitely seems under diagnosed, especially when you see the mean age of diagnosis. I can't remember the last time I looked at the studies, but it's like decades, I think. So if you think of, if people are getting diagnosed in their seventies, how many people out there today are there that are, you know, undiagnosed until X date that are just, you know, don't even know that they, they have this community that they can, lean on and their strength in numbers. And I think once there's enough of us kind of coalesce together, hopefully we can um, lobby for better research, better, I think disability accommodation is so key. And at some point, maybe we can just do a separate episode on that and all the struggles. And, you know, I interviewed one, um, uh, a state representative who uses a wheelchair and we just talked about all the struggles to get accommodation. And, you know, people think, oh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, like, places are required to act a certain way. And you and I both know that is not how it's organized. It's really set up so the patients have to advocate and push. And it puts us in a position to be antagonistic to our employer or a business we're trying to frequent. And that's not right. It shouldn't be on us. And yet it shouldn't be, you know, for a mom and pop business that can't afford to put in a wheelchair ramp. Like I, I absolutely feel for that too. And so I, you know, I, I have advocated and I want to put together some legislation called Access America to promote like a federal spending program to incentivize people to get into compliance with the ADA so they don't have to get sued and, you know, do this in the lawsuit setting because that just seems so inefficient and antagonistic. Like, how can we support people to have a more inclusive environment? Definitely. Because any of us can end up in, in a wheelchair. You know, I hear from people that don't have any conditions and they break an ankle or whatever. And then they come to me and they're like, wow, how do you get around? Like, it's really yep. difficult. And it's like, unfortunately, it really, and I'm the same way. It took until this stuff started affecting me that I started seeing just how inaccessible our society is in just so many ways. Um, and hopefully that's a silver lining of COVID. Like some places are learning better accommodations. Some places maybe it's getting worse, but we can hope. And again, strengthen numbers, hopefully when there's kind of enough of us and, you know, so many people have 
you know, coalesced around you. And, you know, hopefully that's, it seems to be building a, a momentum. I feel like things, I don't know about you, but I think in the last few years, things have really changed. And I, I feel a shift that there's hope that things might get better where once it was kind of a wilderness of despair. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Um, so, uh, for my next question, I was going to ask if you have any kind of go-to treatments or anything that has been really helpful for you with any of your symptoms, anything you'd wish you'd known about earlier, like the example for me, I recently learned about liquid IV, those like, um, capsules, like that's been a huge game changer for me. Cause I was just taking salt tabs and it was irritating my stomach too much. So any kind of fun or like really great pain or treatments that have really worked for you? Sure. Um, so along the vein of liquid IV, I am a huge fan of, um, a brand called pickle juice. Okay. Um, it's tastes exactly like pickle juice, but it's fortified awesome. with electrolytes and things. Um, and it's mainly like it's marketed toward, um, like we drink them for Spartan races and like marathon runners and stuff like that. But I, love it. Cause I love that taste and it comes in popsicles and like little shot ones and then giant gallons. It's great. It's my favorite that sounds thing. awesome. I love pickle juice. So uh, my jam, uh, I remember sneaking downstairs as a child and eating like spoonfuls of salt. And I keep looking back at memories and being like, wow, never thought there was anything wrong with me. Okay. <laughs> me too. I used to drink the pickle juice out of the jar. Like it's so, ugh. And yeah. when you think about that, it's like, and, and you crave it. I mean, it's like yeah. this need to, yeah. you know, and now that I realize like, and you know, when I get my salt and potassium check, they're always on so low end of normal or even too low. And it's like, you know, we've been, again, salt has been so villainized. And for some of us, I mean, for some people, obviously salt is dangerous. Um, sure. And, you know, that can be the case, but it's like salt got salt and fat got all the bad rap when sugar is really for most people harder on them. And so I've, I've noticed too, like even taking a spoonful of olive oil or like coconut oil, when I'm really anxious, it does really seem to help me feel better. And I've heard that like, you know, our brains made of fat, like we don't, if we don't have enough fat, like we're just not firing on all cylinders. So, yeah, so totally. funny that that would work. And the coconut oil tastes a little better. It's kind of tasteless, you know, the olive oil can be a little much, but yeah, it's, <laughs> it, but it's amazing how like those quote unquote little things, but can make all the difference when you're oh, for sure. Um, yeah, I, the pickle juice, totally game changer for me. Um, I also use when I'm traveling, cause I have a lot of, um, cervical neck instability. Um, I have a soft neck brace that I absolutely love. It's like called relief. Um, and it's on Amazon for like 20 bucks. Love that thing. Have bought it over and over, over the years. And I hope they never stop making it because I just keep wearing mine out and I love it. Um, you can, I also, you can like it Velcro's in the back. And I've learned that if I'm having a really bad night day, um, when I'm sleeping, I can sleep in it and just turn it around. So the soft parts in the back and sleep on it. Um, that is awesome. I will definitely check that out. Cause I also have the severe instability and I've tried the full brace and it gives me so much anxiety and it puts so much pressure on my clavicles. Oh, it just feels like prison. I, I can't like, I know I need it, but I just can't. So that's a great, that yeah. is awesome. I will check that out for sure. For sure. 
Um, love that. Um, other than that, I've also, I mean, every race in the universe, obviously, those are just kind of a given. I have yet to find a favorite of pretty much any of them other than silver ring splints. I'm not being a good proponent right now as I'm not wearing mine. I love them. I also am a huge fan of um, knockoffs um, that make them cheaper. Uh, my very favorite is zebra, but it's zebra sprints, zebra splints, can't talk, all one word on Instagram. And she makes them. She also has EDS. Um, and I love them because she makes them for so much cheaper. You can get them for 10 bucks a pop instead of, you know, 80. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. Because they are so expensive and they are so easy to lose. Uh-huh. And so because... you like me and you throw them away in gloves all the time. You're like, okay, 10 bucks is way easier to lose than 80. Like, all right. So I love those because I have a lot of issues with my hands and a lot of pain. Um, In the winter, I love the um, like arthritis compression gloves, favorite things. Oh my gosh. Yes. Compression in general. So great. And yeah, it's like where it's, where has it been all my life? Like I really, yeah, it makes a huge difference. I wear compression socks constantly. Um, I also have, especially during the winter, I did this at first for warmth, but then I realized I was more doing it for proprioception. Um, Mm -hmm. At work, like I wear scrubs and they're very baggy and I like that sensation does not work for my legs at all. So I wear um, really, really tight compression leggings underneath them. Um, and it just helps me with the proprioception when I'm wearing something that baggy and ridiculous. <laughs> totally. yeah. yeah. I've always loved wearing tights and really tight, compressive yeah. leggings. And now that I understand why, I mean, I just feel like I'm put together. It's like an exercise. Yeah, I feel contained and like safer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I like that. Definitely. Okay. I think the biggest game changer for me, uh, um, other than like appropriately using my mobility aids, like I'm supposed to, and not just avoiding it constantly, um, would be utilizing and adapting my house as I need it, even if it's like somewhat out of the norm. So like we have a stool in our kitchen so that I can sit down when I'm cooking because we live in, in a pretty small apartment. So using my chair in here doesn't really make that much sense. I have a kitchen chair too. So great. <sighs> I got a closet chair. I got a kitchen (laughs) chair. And sometimes I bring the kitchen chair to the bathroom and then it's just right there. Uh, Shower chair, favorite chair. Been using that thing since I was 12. Love it. We'll never stop with my shower chair. Shower chairs are incredible. Yes, absolutely. Such a makes life so much easier. Yes. Those are such great tips. And I'm glad you mentioned the phenomenon of like how um, hard it is to use our mobility aids. Yes. Especially when we've been raised a long time of it's not second nature, like to work it in. It's just difficult. It's clunky. You forget it around. It's, it's just hard. And then there's the shame factor. And that's where I think, again, like your Instagram page is just this total, you know, bright light to me because, you know, like I said, that interaction at the grocery store, you know, people come up to me, like, it's so like, I don't want to just be thinking about you know, I'm not an Ehlers-Danlos doll. Like I'm a person, like this is part of my life, but I'm just trying to live and the stigma are like, you know, you show up, you know, after surgery, when I was on crutches or using a cane, people, you know, you see it on their face, like, oh no, what's wrong? And then, you know, it's like, were you in a car accident? Was it a bear attack? And you're just like, I have a connective tissue disorder you've never heard of. And then they're almost more horrified. Like, what is this? Could this happen to me? You know? And so you're just often this like, scary shame filled area. And it's, it's too bad because 
they really do, those mobility aids are everything to us and like getting over that stigma is so important. And so again, just like, thank you so much for doing your part on that front. Cause I think you, and you know, there's some other just great um, people on Instagram out there who are really working to dismantle that stigma um, as strong as it is. Um, and so that, that brings me, uh, it's a good segue into the question. Um, as I mentioned into the, in the introduction, you were named Miss Wheelchair Virginia in both 2020 and 2021. Um, congratulations, first of all, that's awesome. Um, and could you tell our listeners a little bit about what that experience was like and the ways in which you've been able to increase awareness through your role in that position? Absolutely. So um, like many people, I'm sure listening, I had never heard of the Miss Wheelchair America pageant. I had competition, not a pageant. I always do that. Um, <laughs> I'd never heard of it at all. Um, and I um, had dabbled in modeling a bit. And so I had a photographer friend who reached out to me and he's like, hey, um, you should compete in the Miss Wheelchair Virginia pageant. It's coming to the town where you live. And I'm like, um, okay. Uh, first of all, like I'd been in a wheelchair for maybe four months. Like I was totally just like brand new, like, I don't know about this. Eh. So then I, I was like, oh, then my second part was when the photographer uh, mentioned this to me, I said, okay, um, uh, half of my head is shaved. I have tattoo sleeves and normally every other word is a curse word. What poor part of this says pageant girl to you? And he laughs at me and he's like, no, 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 don't worry. Like, it's not like your traditional pageant. It's advocacy based. It's mainly public speaking. And I was like, all right. So like, I don't have to like put on a bathing suit and like push down a runway. It's like, no, no. I was like, and there's no talent portion. It's like, no, no, you're fine. I'm like, okay, fine. Why not? Like at this point I was like, not separated from my relationship yet. Um, but it was going towards downhill up my, I was having a lot of mental health issues regarded to being newly in a wheelchair. Um, and I was just like, you know what? I have nothing else to lose. Like, sure. I'll enter this contest. And so when I won, I thought that I like blacked out a little bit when they said my name. Cause I'm just like, I'm sorry, what? Like me? Are you, are you serious? Um, the actual pageant itself, I guess I could explain that. Uh, we, we were judged on, um, we did a judging interview and then like a judging, um, not in front of an audience interview session. And then there was one in front of the audience. Um, we also had to develop a platform um, that we would utilize similar to like the Miss America, you know, go around and educate on your platform. Um, do that kind of thing to kind of base our advocacy work for the next year. Um, and so we had to develop that. And then we kind of had to develop like a storyboard about either our platform, our lives or our disability or something. Um, and so that's what the main things we were judged on. And so initially um, I, my first platform <laughs> was um, increasing access and increasing um, accessibility to mental health services for uh, individuals with disabilities, or I was focusing on uh, mobility limiting disabilities since I can speak for what I have. Um, and I did that because I had such, uh, a huge, I mean, mental break basically related to 
the loss of my mobility and going through that and then discussing with friends and family members with all different types of disabilities and realizing like even if they went through something horribly traumatic um, or were born with a disability or their parents were you know the ones who were taking care of them none of the above were offered mental health services and at that time I was working in a case as a case manager um, which afforded me the um, ability to know that if it did exist, I would have been the one giving it to people. So I gave resources as that job and I know they didn't exist because I didn't have them to give. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of my first platform. But as I kind of like grew in my advocacy and I kind of, I guess everything just changed because I kept this platform for two whole years. Thank you, COVID. <laughs> and so, um, during my first year, it was, um, so I was crowned November of 2019. And so at first, obviously all of my stuff was in person and it was really cool. Um, I got to travel a lot all over the state and speak to, oh gosh, um, people like groups of all sizes from thousands to like two. Um, (laughs) and it's, it was really, really cool. And then COVID hit and it became mostly zoom. Um, but it still was incredible, but like just the type of people that I I found myself speaking to that second part of that first year ended up being mostly medical professionals. And that's when I started really thinking about how much I missed working bedside and how much I wanted to get back to that. And so that's about the time that my platform flipped to advocating for disabled healthcare workers, um, just to gainful employment. It wasn't even to get back to bedside. And so at that point I got to speak to medical schools and classes of physical therapists, occupational therapists, students. Oh, it's been really, really, really cool um, to get to kind of give back to my career path. And also while educating on not only Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, but how to just appropriately care for and speak to those of us with disabilities and chronic illnesses, because there's so much of that lost in the medical world. And it like, with me living this like double life, I'm constantly like, not only catching myself and my coworkers doing things that I would normally advocate against, it gives me a, you know, second to educate. So (laughs) the Miss Wheelchair Virginia Patrick has been just life-changing for me. Um, I have gotten to meet celebrities and do things like I got to meet Billie Jean King. Like that was really cool. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Play tennis at the time, but it was still really cool. <laughs> um, and yeah. because it just I've been afforded opportunities to try more adaptive sports than I would ever have ever done. Um, and just learn so much more about me as a person because I was crowned Miss Wheelchair of Virginia and then immediately like went through a divorce. And so not only was I learn- newly learning about myself as a disabled wo- woman, I was newly learning about myself as a single disabled woman. And so I was traveling to all these speaking engagements and doing all this advocacy by myself. I did not have assistance and I was driving. I mean, I remember I went to a speaking engagement. I had, it had been canceled by COVID the first year, rescheduled. And it was, um, for a museum in my town, but for a, um, a group that I'm really passionate about, um, that's in the Richmond area, um, that employs a bakery with those with disabilities for those with disabilities where it's mental, intellectual, physical, doesn't matter. 
Um, and they're mainly teenagers and I absolutely love them. So this was something I really wanted to do. And I had just had major intestinal surgery like two weeks prior. And I was like, Nope, don't care. Got in my car and drove three hours. Wow. It was the dumbest thing I've ever done, but it was totally worth it. Absolutely worth it. Um, I like, well, because while I was there after I spoke, there was a little girl and her parents came up to me and the little girl, she was maybe three. Um, and they were like, Hey, like she wants to meet the princess. I am a crown on and everything. And I'm like, okay, like best part of the job, by the way, is the little girls that want to meet the princess. But she comes over and they told me that she was born with her intestines outside of her body. So she had scars that matched the scars that I had on my stomach for my surgery. Exactly. So the princess and the little girl got to share that we had matched the scars and that little girl like hugged me and sat on my lap. And it just reminded me of why I, I started this to kind of find myself and along the way I have found this amazing community and gained so much more than I could ever possibly imagined. And I like, do not expect to get off this ride anytime soon. Um, I know that I will not be able to work in uh, nursing forever, but I will definitely be able to advocate in forever and I'm not going to stop. So, <laughs> Such a fantastic story. I love every part of that. And it's so great how you've managed to chain, to channel this huge adversity and these huge challenges into, um, you know, being able to find yourself that process that we all struggle with so much and resist. And, you know, that it, you know, kind of forced you to confront yourself and just open up all these new avenues. And now, you know, that you're an inspiration to, you know, that little girl and so many other people to just see you, you know, living your life and um, not apologizing for who you are or what's happened to you and being informative, but still, you know, funny and, you know, engaging and, um, you know, trying to, you know, keep the sort of positive spin on things, but you're, you're realistic when things are difficult too. And that's part of, you know, that being like actually authentic and, you know, real is really difficult in a social media environment. And so it's just such a great story just all around. And I love that you've used your advocacy efforts to help get those mental health services because you're so right. It's just, it's amazing how people get these life-changing diagnoses. You know, I have a close family member when I was young, got diagnosed with leukemia Uh, And I don't think there was anything offered for our family, for him. And it's like, it's really, it's life-changing and it's so difficult. And it seems like such a necessary part of the process to have even just like other, you know, I think there were support groups and stuff, but I, you know, um, just it, it, it's not a part of the treatment in the way that it, you know, it feels like integrating that at an early phase um, and getting people who are really well-trained, really competent, you know, understand the condition and can be compassionate and supportive. Like that is just everything. So I'm, I'm just so happy for you all around. Uh, You know, I, that sounds like such a scary experience going from newly being in a wheelchair to being thrown into this, but it seems like it's just gone so great. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm just really super impressed. Um, Kind of going back a little bit to talk about your social media um, presence, 
you recently had a very interesting post about the phenomenon of touch starvation um, and your experience with it. And I, it really spoke to me uh, and I thought our listeners might, um, you know, appreciate learning a little bit more about that. Would you mind, I guess, speaking a little bit about what you discovered and um, like ways to manage it? Sure, absolutely. Um, so the phenomenon or of touch starvation or as it's also called skin hunger, but I just don't, I don't like that one. So we're going to stick with touch starvation. It's not as creepy sounding, <laughs> but it's the phenomenon that, um, and it's not only related to the disability community, it's related to absolutely anyone, but it's just the phenomenon of when you go through a long period of time without experiencing physical touch, especially that which is targeted in a way that isn't, you know, medical or necessary. Um, so, you know, just, just the absence of familiar touch. And a lot of people, I, I will be honest, I was writing this because I had written a piece about it, like a journal entry to myself years ago. And I remembered it. I was like, oh, I should totally write about this. Not even thinking how many other people are going to be experiencing this because of COVID. <laughs> I was just immediately like, oh yeah, that's right. Because working as a nurse, COVID hasn't changed a whole bunch in most of my life, like the, except for, you know, the whole COVID patients thing, but I've been working the whole time. So that part hasn't changed for me, but most people <laughs> it has. And so it was really cool to see the feedback from that, but it's, so the, the idea behind touch starvation is not only is it going to affect you mentally and psychologically, it also can absolutely affect you, affect the rest of your body. I mean, GI upsets, um, it can cause um, low to high blood pressure spikes. Um, it can, I mean, just like a plethora of things that I honestly had no idea. Mm -hmm. And I spoke from kind of, I actually was, did a podcast last night. We were talking about experiencing this and kind of how jokingly, like when I started using mobility aids and when I started using a wheelchair, um, the, the joke was, you know, can you have sex? was the joke that everyone was kind of asking me and the part that everyone expected me to like miss no. the or, you know and I'm like yeah no um not but, a joke. yeah <laughs> yes, seriously. so then I realized that it wasn't that at all it the things that I missed the most regarding intimacy was that being able to hold hands with my partner walking down the street mm -hmm. or being able to come up for my partner from behind and you know a kiss her on the neck or something like that so just easy normal touch. And when I became a wheelchair user, when I was such, such a new wheelchair user, even people who knew me well were almost afraid to touch me. Um, and this stems to, you know, a lot of this audience will relate to a lot of my childhood when people will, would find out about my diagnosis when I was older, they were immediately afraid to touch me because they were afraid I was so breakable that something mm -hmm. might immediately dislocate. I had to constantly like, all right, this is what's wrong with me, but I'm not breakable. Like it's okay. In a sense, <laughs> but, um, it's, it's definitely something that I've dealt with on and off my entire life. And it absolutely affects you, mind, body, heart, soul. And I knew that from my listeners, I had so many different perspectives on this, whether it was people who had been widowed and had lived alone for a very long time. I had people reach out who had lived with COVID for a long time, um, with COVID in nursing homes. Um, and then just the 
person I was speaking to last night, he's a quadriplegic and has been for almost 15 years. Mm -hmm. And so for him, I know people are also afraid to reach out and touch because they know he can't feel it. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, it's a difficult thing to deal with and ways to kind of reprocess that. So for we, with me, um, having a partner, it's been finding ways that we can express touch in, in ways that work for us. Um, so the, because we're both wheelchair users, um, the few times that we can put our wheelchair side by side when we're out, you know, we'll put our hand on the other one's knee or we'll jokingly hold hands while trying to wheel down the street. It's not safe, but it's fun. <laughs> um, but little things that we just kind of adapt to our own needs. Um, my friend who's a quadriplegic was telling me when he has a partner that's laying with him in bed, he'll just ask them to keep their hand on his cheek as opposed to where you would normally just put your head on their shoulder or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I had a lot of feedback and things that I did myself when I was single um, and living alone and didn't really have that access, especially during COVID. Um, my weighted blanket has been my favorite thing. I mean, it's my favorite thing anyway, just mm -hmm. because it helps me with my proprioception while I sleep. Or go That's get so great. Yes. I love it. But that weighted blanket really helped me a lot with that lack of touch that I was receiving because of the pandemic and because of things like that. And just making sure when it's applicable and when it, it is okay, that I'm being very intentional with my touch because I realize now how much it does mean mm -hmm. to other people, mm -hmm. um, which is always an interesting line to walk during COVID times, but yes. <laughs> It's for sure. It's complicated things so much more like, yeah, it's so difficult to know what the proper level of physical engagement and people's comfort level. But it's so great that you're opening the conversation about, I mean, I'd never heard of the concept before and it immediately, you know, resonated like oh, yeah. in my brain, like, oh, of course, this is a thing. And of course, I, you know, I think this is contributing to why there's, you know, so many issues in society right now. People are either acting out or, you know, having, you know, really severe anxiety, whatever, all kinds of manifestations. And we, we, we're social animals. We need that touch and that interaction. And so I think you, you know, starting the dialogue and, you know, getting people to talk about, because it's going to be so individual, you know, like you said, for people that are like someone who's paraplegic or someone who's in a wheelchair or someone who just, has reduced mobility in some way and maybe doesn't get out of the house like it's all unique challenges so it's going to need to be addressed on an individual basis but i love how you also have tips like the weighted blanket which you know a lot of people can benefit from um and i, I don't know if you've ever seen those head scratchers that like go on your head yes i love those things like i love that kind of thing i also have a theragun that massager that it's very percussive um, I see they use it in the NFL now. And it's just like, when I get a sore muscle, like, oh, like up these traps in my neck, like it just, it's magic. And it, it just, it feels like it's stimulating, like all those receptors that are just yeah. kind of starved, you know, it's like, even if we have a few people in our lives, like we're still not getting the level of physical interaction touch just even being in the presence of the number of people that we used to be around. And it's very, yeah very challenging. So yeah, kudos to you for having such a great discussion yeah. on your page about it. Um, one of the other really interesting things about your social media, your Instagram in particular, is that 
you produce really varied and interesting content. Like I loved your post quoting Mary Shelley. Um, she's one of my favorite writers. Um, and you also are informing people about really uh, important issues like we just talked about. Um, and you know your engage your engagement with your followers is really great and interesting. And I, you know I've seen a lot of really productive and interesting conversations. We've touched on a few today. Um, I guess what has that process been like of interacting with the community? Like, is there a message or a series of messages messages that you're hearing from your follower community that you would like to echo? Um, you know, either to other patients or to the world more broadly. Um. I think my process with social media has definitely, obviously it's, it's been doing it for a long time now. So it's definitely changed over the years. So it started, it was more of a diary of sorts of exactly what I was going through with my body. And when I have health flares, I try to kind of echo back to that and still speak on that because I know, especially now that I'm constantly getting new followers and there are people who don't know my story. And a lot of my newer followers are not disabled, have never heard of EDS in their entire lives. Um, and so I try to always echo back to that to kind of show that, you know, not only, yes, I'm here and I'm an influencer. I hate that word. <laughs> and, and I'm making content and I'm educating and um, I'm trying to, to, to advocate and do this thing, but I'm also a patient. And so, you know, there was a time where the last summer, um, I wrote a post about getting hired as the first wheelchair nurse at my hospital. Um, and it went viral on LinkedIn of all places because what in the world, <laughs> but it has over now has over 7 million views. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So that kind of, I got a lot of followers overnight. And so with that, all of a sudden my email, my LinkedIn inbox, all my inboxes are exploding. And I was just so overwhelmed. I was like, I, there's no way. Um, and I'm starting a new job as a bedside nurse. I'm working night shift and I'm trying to keep up with my Miss Wheelchair duties and I'm disabled <laughs> and like all this stuff. And I just, I could not do it. And so I had to kind of take a step back and realize like, okay, why am I doing this? Why did I start this in the first place? This used to be something that really made me happy. Why isn't it anymore? And really get back to my roots and realize that accessibility comes in all forms. And as we get older and as our interests change, we are constantly going to be finding more things to make our lives easier. And one of those things for me was hiring a talent team to manage my inbox nice. <laughs> so that it wasn't me anymore. Um, because it just, it, it gets to be too much and it's, it's hard and it, it gets to be difficult to appease to all sides. Um, because I do try to keep my content very varied, very varied, um, mainly because I know that currently as it is living with a chronic illness like EDS and working a full-time job as a bedtime registered nurse that with all of those on my plate already, there is no way I would ever be able to keep up like a content schedule. There's just, there's just no way mm -hmm. I, I work a different schedule every single week. I work nights. I get called in mm -hmm. the last second. It just, it doesn't work for me. 
and I'm just not that organized. So I'm um, keeping it varied and get it. It keeps me able to speak about all of the topics that I get contacted on. We people wanted me to speak on or that just interests me. There was at one point where I was really afraid I was going to have to narrow everything down to just one topic. Cause I, that's how I saw everyone else succeeding. And I was like, you know what? I'm not doing that. Like it's a, it's an umbrella place. It's like you come here and you will learn lots. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's been a learning curve. I just, like I said, I started with, um, I'm represented by C Talent now, which is a team that represents all disabled talent. Um, love them, shout out. Um, but they have helped me start to get um, bigger gigs and bigger speaking engagements. And it's been crazy um, to wrap my head around it, to get to, to speak to these higher levels and things. Um, I was recently the key holder, not key holder, the keynote speaker for the National Int Institute of Health's um, Disability Employment Month. Awesome. So that was last October. And that was just something that came out of the blue in my email. And so it just turned into something that I could never possibly imagine. And I love that so much because um, everything that's come of it is exactly what I needed when I was diagnosed, which has been my goal this entire time. Um, I just got contacted for a, um, an audition for a show that I'm very a big fan of. And so to get to audition to that, not even in spite of my disability, because of my disability, um, that's a whole nother topic for a whole nother discussion, but, mm -hmm. um, needing that kind of disabled representation in media was a whole other portion of this that just kind of come. I, when I started this social media journey, I never expected to get back to my roots of performing and of the stage, but now I'm kind of gotten to combine all of the things that I love to do. And it's been really cool because not only get, do I get to be back on stage, but I get to keep what I thought I would always have to give up with nursing, which is getting to help people. And my goal of getting to change somebody's life just because I decided to come to work every day. And though, you know, slowly but surely my body will not always be able to keep up with bedside nursing. I know that, and it's happening faster than I would like, but because I have this community and this kind of fallback thing, I know that when I do lose that portion of my life, I know it's not going to be gone completely. And I know that I'm not going to be in this deep, dark space because I do have, you know, this really cool community that I've surrounded myself with. Um, and also I've been able to educate disabled nurses and disabled healthcare workers about all of these different types of jobs that, that we are, we can get and disabled humans in general, um, gotten to speak on disability employment. And so getting to make that transition myself, isn't something that I ever really thought that much about of so about. So now getting to experience something that I've educated on for so long is also really a learning curve, but really cool. That's um, so awesome. That is a yeah. great story. And I'm so happy for you. This is, it's just, it's incredible. And it's so inspiring. And it, I also have really noticed there's been a shift in social media and YouTube of people, like you said, getting so narrow and getting onto one issue because that's, you know, people, I can totally see the urge to want to play to the audience and want to please everyone. Sure. And I just, I so much appreciate that you've resisted that and you've kept it about, you have a lot of varied interests. You have a lot of things you're passionate about. 
And I love that you weren't forced to choose. And in fact, like the more you've done, you've like kind of expanded and gotten to do so many of, you know, like we all have our wish list of like the things that we wish we could do. And it's so hard when we have limited capability to try to pick one, you know, in my instance, like there's several projects that I would love to just like give everything to, but you know, a fraction to each of them, it, it doesn't feel like it's getting, you know, very far. So it's just so inspiring to see that you've been able to make that happen in such a great way. And, you know, it's, you're slowly changing minds, you know, and, um, or, you know, maybe now, not so slowly, like now it's kind of reached this kind of, um, you know, really broad critical mass. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's so awesome. And you're so fearless. And like, you've just done all these things with just such a great attitude. And I completely commend you. Um, you I, kind of last question here, um, you know, and sorry for going so long. It's been you know, just it's lovely. Fun talking to you. Um, so you've been working to promote awareness for years. Um, what advice would you give to others who may be looking to tell their stories, but might be anxious about how to do that? Maybe self-conscious or not knowing, you know, where to start. Absolutely. Um, I think that's definitely something that I have grappled with, with my journey of, um, you know, am I ready to share this part of my story? Am I, you know, how much do I share? Um, is this really going to resonate with anyone? Am I just shouting into the void? And so kind of what got me started and got me going, um, actually, I don't even lie. I started me going back in the Tumblr days. I loved Tumblr and was big. And that was when I, the first time I really started, um, talking about living with EDS and back then I did not think anyone was, one was, I'm pretty sure I had about like 10 friends that listened, you know, Um, but just getting that off of my chest and getting it out there into the void, getting it, feeling like I was telling somebody was so helpful and so healing to me. And once that started, you know, I did get feedback though, the little bit that I would out there in Tumblr with other people who were going through exactly what I was going through. And so then getting to bring that over to Instagram, like you will be surprised at how many people will relate to your story word for word and who need to hear exactly what you have to say. And there are days where I am absolutely bone tired from working all night. And I'm like, no, I haven't posted in days. Like I need to post something. And I'm like laying there in bed, like, okay. And I get inspired on something and I start writing, writing, writing. And I put it, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's horrible. Like I'm going to wake up. There's gonna be nothing. And there's like, it, it never fails. Whenever I have like a rough posting day, I get a message that is, you know, whatever I post about that day, like that is what this person needed to hear. And I'm like, all right, this is why I keep doing this. This is why I keep going. And I'm, this is why I'm going to keep going until there's, you know, nobody else who seems to need my help. (laughs) So gotta be here in a while, but you will be so surprised what can happen once you finally kind of let yourself open up about your reality and realize how many other people there are that are living that exact same way and need to hear your tips or the way that you live your life, or maybe have some for you. And you just can't even imagine the benefits that it can bring you. And if you need any help getting started or any tips or tricks, uh, my inbox is always open. (laughs) 
Awesome. That is such an amazing insight. And your story is incredible. I, I can't wait for the documentary that I very much hope someone makes about you someday. <laughs> or the, who knows, the big Hollywood popcorn flick. I mean, it's got that oh, really? to it too. Um, Inbox is open. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So again, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, uh, really, Brian, thank you so much. You have such a refreshing style of disability advocacy that speaks to so many people, myself very much included. Um, and just, you know, thanks for all your creative um, ways of, you know, speaking out and like you said, being open and allowing yourself to, um, you know, put yourself out there. It is so much appreciated. Thank you so much. Well, that's all for this episode of Hypermobility Happy Hour. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, please feel free to email us at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram at hypermobilityhhgram, I believe, on Instagram. Um, and we'll put um, links in the episode description to um, Ryan's Instagram page, Chronically Rye, um, and the Forbes article that she was in. So um, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Bye.